can you feel it? Soon, heroes will rise. A league will unite. The Force will continue to awaken, causing disturbances that will be felt all over the galaxy. The fate of humanity will hang in the balance, and the fate of the Jedi will be revealed at last. On today's El Fanboy, we will find out which movie will own the year 2017. El Fanboy, Episode 34. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles MFR here with you, and this is the 34th edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. What's going on, guys? I uh, We've had some pretty damn exciting trailers in the last week, I would say, and that's kind of why I started the episode this way. I'm like, listen, there's going to be a lot of dissection of trailers, and we've been totally spoiled by an abundance of, of epicness in these last few days. So I'm like, fuck it, I'm going to start this episode with a little bit of a trailer. You know what I mean? So let's dive right in, shall we? I'm going to go chronologically here. We're going to start things off with the Justice League trailer, which arrived in the early morning hours of Sunday. So I gotta, I'm going to start very positive because my initial read on it was very positive. Um, I love the opening sequence with Clark in the field with the Hans Zimmer theme playing with you know, with those little somber piano notes. That moment there where the camera rises up to Cavill's face and the way he delivers his lines to Lois, like that's the most Superman-like that he has felt to me since that moment in the bar in Man of Steel. It just gave me chills. That, that moment right there and, and the way it sort of was crushing as you realize that she's just fantasizing about this. She's dreaming about this because she's been left with this void that he's gone. You know, it was powerful. And I also love the way that, you know, they, they seem to shape the story. They seem to shape what's happening in terms of how Superman's death has led to a wave of violence and evil around the world as, as criminals and evildoers now think it's time to do their worst now that Superman is no longer around as Earth's protector. I, I love that that's kind of how they're framing this whole thing. And the idea that Batman is forced to put together this, this incredible team of metahumans because he knows that the threats are only going to get worse. And without Superman around to kind of help keep everything in check, you know, someone has to rise. And, you know, Wonder Woman talking about how we're getting all these people who don't know us or know each other to basically put their lives on the line for all this. You know, I just, I, I love the way that they're sort of, you know, creating the Justice League within the shadow of Superman's death. And I, there's a, there's a great internal logic there and a real dramatic driving force. And the, tra this was the first trailer that really, to me, really sort of, you know, hit that point home. 
but then, you know, at around the two minute mark, I start to drift away. You know, as soon as it becomes the hyper stylized red world and nothing but over the top action and one liners, it just sort of falls apart for me. Um, it's just, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I really dug how the DCEU had started with Man of Steel, how they were trying to be a little more real world ish in the beginning. You know, they were trying to approach the Superman mythology from what if, you know, the idea of what if this really happened? What would happen? How would the Earth respond if a flying, all-powerful alien suddenly showed up on land? You know, they would treat him like a, like an outsider, like a, like a scary terrorist of some sort. And in general, the aesthetic of Man of Steel was very much like, you know, it was more science fiction. It was more what would happen if this was really going on. And I just feel like more, you know, with each film, they get further and further away from that. And now, you know, for me, it's all going to get sort of capped off by the what looks like it's going to be a very, very over the top third act for Justice League with the red skies and the parademons and and the barren wasteland that they're fighting in. Um, you know, that's not to say that I don't think it can be good. Like I said, you know, Wonder Woman's, uh, actually, I didn't say this yet, but I'm going to, you know, but Wonder Woman's, uh, final act also got a little big and over the top and hyper stylized, but they were able to ground it in something more emotionally rich. Uh, and that's why I hope that Justice League has more in common with Wonder Woman's third act in terms of other ones. Yeah. It's just, I kind of want to like recap for you guys, you know, what DCEU's third acts have been for me in a nutshell, all right? So Man of Steel's third act, hated it. To me, it was the worst part of the movie. It felt soulless and empty and just, it, it just kind of, I hated it. Um, Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, the third act was actually my favorite part in the entire movie. It was, the, it was my, it was, for me, it was the best aspect of that long slog of a film. Uh, Suicide Squad hated the third act. For me, it was just a bunch of noise. And again, Wonder Woman, I liked it much more than most did. You know, as I've said before, it struck all the right storytelling notes for me, which helped me forgive some of the hokier elements. So here's hoping that Justice League's third act is more in line with Wonder Woman than Man of Steel or Suicide Squad. You know, the, the trailer gives me reasons to be concerned that it's going to just be a bunch of noise and a bunch of hyper-stylized nonsense, but I'm trying to be optimistic. You know, I'm still excited. I'll be there on opening night along with those listeners and supporters out there who want to join me at the official L Fanboy Justice League watch party on November 17th here in Queens. But I'm just very, very skeptical. Um, you know, the, the, the third act has me worried. But uh, that's all I, I can really say about the Justice League trailer. Overall, you know, it, I, I, the first two minutes of it got me very hyped. So I'm going to try to stay in that positive zone overall on the trailer. Give it a thumbs up, even if I have uh, some concerns. Then the next big trailer was Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. So that premiered last night during halftime of the Monday night football game, which was a real turkey of a game, by the way, right? I think they went into halftime with a score of three to two. It was an awful game to have to sit through just to get to a Star Wars trailer. 
But uh, boy, did the trailer deliver, man. Um, let's see, where do I even start? I mean, I can't even go chronologically because one of the first things that jumped out at me happens towards the end. But we get our first real look at Snoke, not the giant hologram Snoke. We see him like in like he's actually there, we, and we get a sense for his actual size. And it now looks like Ray is going to come face to face with Snoke in this movie. And to me, that was like, I was not expecting that. Um, you know, we got teased about all kinds of major story items and, and, and or like big moments in the film are sort of alluded to. Um, you know, look, we got we got our best look yet at Luke Skywalker and where he's at as a character these days. And yet, with the fair amount of misdirection that seems to be going on, I still feel like we don't know a hell of a lot about what's going to happen in The Last Jedi. And that's great. Um, but let's see. You know, let's try to analyze some of these bigger moments. You know, for me, one of the big ones, and it's going to lead to a lot of conversations about you know what exactly or who exactly is he referring to. But there's this moment where he says, where Luke says, I've seen this raw strength only once before. It didn't scare me enough then, it does now. Um, so now, now, so who, who is he referring to, right? That's the big question there. Because if we look at that line, it actually sort of harks back to Empire Strikes Back, where he's being trained by Yoda on Dagobah, and he has that line about says, I'm not afraid. And Yoda says, you will be. So this line seems to sort of be referencing and bookending that, where he's admitting that the last time he saw this raw strength, it didn't scare him enough. But now that he's seeing it again, it does. So there's that element. But then there's the trailer itself, which paints it a different way. The trailer itself paints it like he might be speaking about Kylo Ren. Because if you look at the imagery that they use after he says that line, it's Luke pulling himself out of the rubble there at like the Jedi Temple. And this looks like, you know, like they're revisiting the sequence where Kylo betrays him and the, in the, and the Knights of Ren sort of form as they destroy the Jedi Temple and Kylo Ren becomes, you know, Kylo Ren. So the trailer gets you to think it's Kylo Ren. The line gets you to think back to Empire Strikes Back, which would imply that the raw power he's referring to is actually Darth Vader, not Kylo Ren. And now we have to wonder, you know, which one is he actually referring to? I have a feeling he is referring to Kylo Ren um, because it just feels to me like, you know, they've been playing with this idea for a while. And as, as, as folks involved with these films talk about it more and more, you hear about this overriding theme of Ray and Ben Solo or Kylo Ren being two sides of the same coin. And if we're going to go with that and the idea of the parallels and that they're both very much alike, but just on different paths, they both have this incredible raw power. They're both young, but incredibly gifted. If you look at some of the things that Ray was able to accomplish in Force Awakens, you know, she's obviously got something very incredible deep within her. Uh, if you look at some of the things that Kylo Ren's been able to do and the fact that he was able to survive being shot by that laser that, Chewie, that Chewie shot at him, despite the fact that that laser could single-handedly kill three stormtroopers in one blast, he took it and kept on fighting. Uh, you know, Kylo Ren's also obviously a freak of raw strength. 
So I think we're gonna. I think they're gonna continue to sort of explore this idea of Kylo Ren and Rey being very much alike, and also just innately powerful creatures that are just need the proper guidance of you know to get them to where they can be, to get them to achieve their destiny and achieve their goals. Um, you know, and that's a big recurring theme too. You know, Ryan Johnson has compared the Star Wars movies to what it means to grow up, to what it means to go through adolescence and figure out who you're going to be and whose advice are you going to take, who's going to help to shape your impressionable mind. And if we're go if we're looking at that sort of theme that they're going for here, you know, it all sort of goes in line that Kylo and Rey are very much alike, but they're listening to the wrong people or they're listening to the right people, depending on how you look at it. And where they end up when this is all over is going to be the big fascinating part of all this. How are these people going to be shaped by the voices around them? And you've got Kylo Ren crushing his helmet, you know, his very Vader-esque helmet and, and saying that line about needing to let the past die. Uh, you know, it looks like, you know, he's almost teasing that he might be coming over to the light side if he's if he really is truly trying to let his obsession with Vader die. And he and, and, and we know that in, the, in Force Awakens, he was talking about how, um, you know, he feels a pull to the light. So this trailer also plays with that idea that maybe the pull is is is, is you know, pulling on him again. Uh, but then there's also that thing where it looks like he might kill Leia. And, and I wonder, again, if that is really going to happen or if that's just some clever editing. But then, you know, b between, the, between the fact that it looks like Kylo might be letting go of the dark side and, and Rey at seemingly asking him for help, um, you know, it, there, there's just a lot to think about there. There's a lot to think about. Or what about the fact that the new poster they just released seemingly puts Luke Skywalker in the in a very similar position to how Darth Vader used to be used in the old posters. The way his big hooded head looms over the artwork in the poster is very, very reminiscent of the way Vader used to be used in the Star Wars films he was a part of. So, you know, you think about that and you think about that line again. Let's go back to that line about not being afraid, and you know, I've seen this power before, and it didn't scare me enough then, but it does now. The idea of fear keeps coming up. And if you'll recall, within the Star Wars lore, the way Yoda speaks of fear, fear is the path to the dark side, right? What's the famous line? Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. And of course, suffering leads to the dark side. So they are once again, this trailer is trying to plant the seeds that the villains may not be who we think they are. The villains and the heroes, as we know them, may end up on totally different sides of their respective fences by the end of this movie. And then there's that, you know, that crazy closing shot where it looks like she's going to Kylo to try to get, you know, guidance from him. And look, while there's a very real chance that the closing shot is just very cleverly edited and that Ray isn't, in fact, speaking to Kylo in that moment and he isn't offering his hand to her, we must remember Kylo didn't want to kill her. 
at the end of Force Awakens, which is why he let her win that lightsaber battle. He, he didn't want to kill her. He, he wanted to train her. Remember that? He wanted to work with her and help harness her power some way. So it's not completely beyond the realm of possibility that that idea continues into this. And for all we know, maybe Rey uses that desire of his to trick him. And she goes to him after training with Luke. And she feigns that she now regrets training with Luke and would rather learn from Kylo and Snoke, which is how she ends up face-to-face with Snoke. So there's so many questions. Um, Yeah, I could go on and on, but needless to say, uh, I thought it was a very effective trailer. It, It posed some things that seemed fairly surprising it asks some questions that you can only really find out by watching the movie itself. It looks and feels like Star Wars. It feels definitely darker and more complex than The Force Awakens did. Uh, so even if it doesn't end up being like The Empire Strikes Back in terms of aping its plot line, which thank God it doesn't seem to be doing, but it looks like it will be The Empire Strikes Back of this trilogy in terms of taking these characters that we've now met into darker, murkier, more complex territory. So it looks like, so far, hats off to Ryan Johnson. Uh, It looks like he went the right way with this, and I cannot fucking wait for December 15th. I already picked up my tickets. I got 10 tickets last night. Basically, me and and my people, we have an entire row to ourselves, and it's going to be an epic night. So bring it on. Um, Speaking of epic nights, I had two of those last week. Uh, In preparation for Blade Runner 2049, I decided I needed to watch the original again because it had been nearly 25 years since I had done so. And then the very next night, I saw 2049. So I kind of had this interesting back-to-back night of, you know, nights of being immersed in this world And let me tell you kind of, let me recap it for you. So Blade Runner, the original, I I still kind of have to stand by the same feeling I had when I was nine or 10 when I saw it, which is, it's a beautiful movie. I can see why it's so important to certain people. I can see why it was so influential, but it just wasn't for me. Uh, For me, it was just kind of, it, it felt sort of aimless, and sort of dull. Um, it just yeah, it, it doesn't entertain me. Uh, I think that's the best way I, I can explain it. I, I can see all the quality that's up on the screen. I can tell that I'm looking at something that was masterfully put together, but it just doesn't it doesn't get me firing on on all cylinders. Um, and that's why when I went to go see Blade Runner 2049. I walked in with very sort of tempered expectations. You know, I had literally just watched the first the night before. So it was all very fresh in my mind. And I'm like, all right, you know, I I don't know what to expect anymore. Um, And believe it or not, I actually liked 2049 more than the original. I thought it was a beautiful movie. You know, it speaks the same language as the first one, but it tells a more interesting and more focused story. It's a little long, but I think that was just part of doing things the Blade Runner way. You know, if you'll recall, the first film had a very methodical pacing to it. 
And it looks like Denis Villeneuve really wanted to keep it that way. He wanted to keep telling this story in the same sort of visual storytelling language that Ridley Scott had done, you know, 35 years ago. Uh, It probably could have been around 45 minutes shorter. It probably could have been closer to a two-hour film instead of a two-hour and 40-something minute film. Um, But I had no regrets. I actually really, really enjoyed that one way more than the original. If you get a chance... I would definitely recommend it, again, with the caveat that it is a kind of, you know, it is a little slow moving, but to me, it was a very satisfying experience, and it's kind of unfortunate what came of that. We'll get to it in the box office notes in a minute, but it's, you know, it's unfortunate that it looks like it it, it stumbled out of the gates, and it's going to end up being a bit of a black eye uh, for those involved. But uh, before we get into the week's news and the box office and all that good stuff, I also want to make an announcement. So I finally got the Patreon page going. If you go to www.patreon.com slash lfanboy, you can now officially go and participate in the creation of this show um, and help support me so that I can continue to do it. Uh, and more, because here's the thing, I, th- there's so much I want to do, but this is all very, very time-consuming stuff. And I'm someone who has a full-time job. I've got two kids and a wife who require a lot of my attention. I have a lot of creative endeavors that I'm trying to get off the ground. So my time is becoming exceedingly valuable to me. I'm also going to start going back to school. I'm going to become a teacher at some point next year. So it's, you know, I've got a lot on my plate. But I want to keep being able to do this for you guys every week. It's a, it, it's a great outlet for me. And I know that I have a, a dedicated you know, following here who seems to appreciate what I'm putting out every week. So I want to keep this going for you guys. And I would love to up it up. I would love to up the ante. You know, I have these like special episodes that I have in mind. You know, there's the one that I, I have to keep on hold for now dedicated to Ben Affleck as Batman. Uh, There's also weekly YouTube videos I want to start creating. I want to start getting you guys involved where you pitch me a movie and I will review it for you uh, if you're a patron on the page. There's all kinds of stuff that I want to do, but this all takes a lot of time. And basically, ever since uh, LRM and I parted ways earlier this year, I'm basically doing this for free. You know, this is just me on my own time with my own resources I'm fronting the cost to host the podcast. I'm putting in the valuable time to try to edit and put together a good weekly program for you. And I'm not getting anything tangible out of it, aside from the fact that I know that a bunch of you enjoy it. Um, But truthfully, I, I need to start making something on this show if I'm if I plan on continuing and expanding it and giving you guys thoughtful video essays and trying to really push for interviews and really try to grow this brand. Uh, I can't do it just on a voluntary, just cause I love it sort of thing. You know, it's one thing when, it, when I was like, if I was like 19 or 20 years old and I was just kind of, you know, exploring different options, I could donate that kind of time to this stuff, but I'm a 34 year old man with a career and a family And this, you know, this, I have to make my time important and valuable. So 
please take some time to visit the Patreon account. Uh, I would love it if I can get some patrons going soon. I'm learning how to create rewards for you guys and, and patron exclusive content. And I'm going to be updating the profile uh, in the weeks to come, maybe even days to come, with what the first batch of rewards will be for my initial patrons. But uh, for now, I just kind of wanted to finally put that out there that the account is up and running. If you love the show, if you want to support the show, then you now have a place that you can do that. All right? But okay, enough about plugging the Patreon, enough of all this mindless yammering. Let's get into the week's news. So, folks, Blade Runner 2049 finally arrived in theaters this weekend. And it was basically welcomed with a big, eh. The weekend actuals are in, and Blade Runner 2049 opened to $32.7 million. This was in an extremely wide release. Uh, they opened it on more than 4,000 screens. Uh, Warner Brothers had high hopes for this thing. Alcon Entertainment had very high hopes for this thing. And, you know, listen, they spent a ton of money. They spent a ton of money. Right now, it looks like when all is said and done between budget and, and promotion, you know, the studio spent around $300 million to get this Blade Runner movie to you. So a $32.7 million opening does not cut it, especially when the projections earlier on were around 45 to $50 million. Uh, 32.7 is very abysmal, and it does not bode well for the future of this franchise. Uh, I mean, not that not that it was even going to be a franchise, but, you know, you, you never want to see something like this fall on its face like that. And clearly, Warner Brothers and Alcon, you know, they, they kind of had a, uh, a miscalculation on what the interest level was for this film. Uh, people were hoping it would do more like, you know, uh, Mad Max Fury Road, which opened to 45 mil. But no, despite the fact that it had a lower budget than Mad Max uh, and all this extra sort of prestigious hype that Mad Max Fury Road did not have, it opened far less than that. So that's that's, a, you know, that's sad. It's sad. And it's got all kinds of people analyzing now whether or not studios should be making movies like this anymore. If maybe you just got to start making dumbed down movies for the masses because clearly the masses can't handle an intelligently crafted grown-up thriller anymore. I wouldn't go that far personally. I know why people are are speaking in such terms, but I I don't I don't tend to agree. I think there's there's definitely an audience out there for this kind of thing. You, the main thing is they just can't spend this amount of money on it anymore. You know, they should have found a way to make this for far less than the very hefty price tag that they spent. Because this movie was going to be a gamble. You know, I, I, I was telling my friend the other day when I went to go see it, I'm like, you know, really in terms of sequels, you know, this has more in common with Tron Legacy than it did let's say The Force Awakens, if we're talking about, you know, beloved fanboy properties that are getting sequels many, many years after the previous film had happened. 
You know, because even because I brought it up because, you know, Harrison Ford is in both. And in theory, you know, this this reminds people of when he returned to the role of Han Solo. But really, you know, Rick Deckard and Blade Runner in general was always more of a niche thing. It was always a smaller, more cult following movie. It was more like Tron in that regard, where, yes, the people who saw it loved it, but it was not this huge mainstream extravaganza. Let's not forget that, folks. The original Blade Runner also was not a big box office winner. It got a big following and a big reputation once it came into home release, but Blade Runner was not a big-time movie when it came out box office-wise. So that's that makes this whole thing even more perplexing. As to, okay, you're going to make a risky sequel to a film that wasn't a huge hit to begin with, and you're going to spend a ton of money on it. Um, So it was always going to be a gamble, and the gamble did not pay off. Um, It's sad. It's a great, great movie. But I think they just invested way too many resources in it. Uh, The other big wide release this weekend was uh, The Mountain Between Us with Idris Elba and Kate Winslet. That opened above projections. Uh, it opened to $10.5 million. Uh, Listen, it's a little low-budget sort of character piece. The reviews were very sort of hit or miss. Um, but yeah, it only cost $35 mil to make. So far, it's made back 14.2 of that. So, you know, I, I think it'll end up being profitable. And what more could you really expect? This was not some big blockbuster. So I think a $10.5 million opening for that film is actually quite respectable. Then we've got Stephen King's It hanging in there at third place with $9.9 million. Still making a killing. Making a goddamn killing. Remember, that film, Stephen King's It, only cost... I think somewhere in like the mid thirties and it has made just domestically $305 million so far. So just unbelievable what that movie's doing. The other big wide release was my little pony, the movie, which opens in fourth place. Uh, Kingsman golden circle continues to sort of sink into mediocrity uh, with an $8.6 million weekend. It is not holding a candle at this point to the original Kingsman. Um, And then here's the one that I kind of want to beat my chest on a little bit. American Made, guys. American Made. Despite all the prognosticators wanting to shit all over it because it's fun to shit on Tom Cruise, American Made only dropped 49.7% in its second weekend. Like I told you guys last time, This thing was built for grown-ups. It was built to last. It was built to kind of be around for a while, to give the adults in the room some entertainment as everyone else is flocking out to go see Thor and Batman and all this other shit. American Made is meant to be for the grown-ups. So let's look at this, shall we? Right now, the $50 million movie that is American Made has already grossed $99 million worldwide. That means that pretty much by the end of today or tomorrow, it will have made back its money, and that means it did so in about nine days. From here on, from tomorrow on, it's going to be nothing but profit. 
So all the folks who wanted to shit all over American Made and were comparing it to other Tom Cruise movies, even though it's not really like other Tom Cruise movies, it's not an action movie, it's not a blockbuster, there's not a, there's not a bunch of CG or, or action sequences, it's a movie that's way more in common with The Wolf of Wall Street or War Dogs. This film is doing just fine. It's doing exactly what Universal wanted of it. And with these, if it continues to have these sorts of gentle drops and it continues to open more and more in the foreign markets where Tom Cruise is still king, Universal is going to make a killing on this movie. So I kind of wanted to just circle back to that because it still astounds me the coverage that was given to American Made last week uh, with, based on its opening. But all right, now let's get to one of the hotter stories that's taken place since we last spoke. Gambit, 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 Gambit. Fox's next sort of big standalone mutant film. You know, now that they've had great success with Deadpool and with Logan, you know, they sent Gambit back to the drawing board and they're restructuring it into a sort of character-driven R-rated film starring Channing Tatum. And the whole project's been on hold for a while. We know Doug Lyman, who uh, directed American Made and directed uh, Edge of Tomorrow and all that sort of stuff. He's, you know, he stepped away. And so the whole project's been sort of up in the air for a while. And in the last week and a half, thanks to official reports, thanks to the splash report as well, we've got some no some some details, some some fresh updates on what's going on with Gambit. So let's start with what we know to be official that's been reported by the trades. And that is the film seems to have a director. It looks like Gore Verbinski is going to direct the standalone Gambit film starring Channing Tatum. Now, for those of you unaware with Verbinski's filmography, he's best known for the first three Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Um, and then you know, beyond those, he directed The Ring, which is a very seminal horror film for its time. He directed The Weatherman. He directed Rango. He directed The Lone Ranger. And he directed A Cure for Wellness, which came out uh, early last year. Um, actually, was that earlier this year at this point? I can't even keep track anymore. But <coughs> let's talk about Gore Verbinski, shall we? I'm not excited. I hate to say it. I'm not excited. I Look, Pirates of the Caribbean, I've said before, was not my cup of tea. I lost interest halfway into the first one. And I've pretty much never returned. Uh, I fell asleep towards the end of The Curse of the Black Pearl. Uh, I saw Dead Man's Chest just basically out of obligation because my girlfriend at the time really wanted to. Uh, I'm not, I, don't need, I think I skipped at World's End entirely. And then I know he didn't do the fourth or fifth films, but I haven't seen any of those either. So for me, the whole Pirates thing is a total wash. I don't really care. Um, then he did the Lone Ranger, which is like, what? Um, and then he, he, here's my concern, you know, with Gambit, if we're going for a more intimate story, a more character driven thing, which is what Fox seems to be trying to do with these standalone mutant movies like Deadpool and Logan, I don't know that Gore Verbinski's filmography yells that he's very capable of handling that. If we look at his most recent if, you, if we look at A Cure for Wellness, which attempted to be a more character-driven, more grown-up sort of thriller, to me, that film was kind of a mess. And, I, and the funny thing is, I liked it more than most people did. 
You know, the, the reviews were not kind for that movie. And for me personally, I thought it was okay. I liked it more than most, but even I admit that tonally it was a bit of a muddled mess. Verbinski did not seem to know what kind of movie he was trying to make there. Was it a grown-up sort of adult thriller, a psychological thriller uh, that's kind of like Shutter Island? Or is it some sort of like pulpy, over-the-top, over-stylized, insane, mad scientist movie, which looks like might, might have been better suited in the hands of someone like Sam Raimi channeling his evil deadness? You know, it didn't seem to know what it wanted to be, and it was all over the place. And for me, you know, it just... N n nothing I've seen from him screams that he would be the guy to bring Gambit to life or to do something that stands alongside Logan and Deadpool. You know, if they announced him for, like, the next big proper X-Men sequel, that would make sense because, you know... Even though he made The Lone Ranger, he does have a pretty good track record for big tentpole, high-budget blockbusters. But he doesn't have a great one when it comes to smaller movies. And if they're trying to go for something smaller, then I just, I don't know that there's anything that he's done that makes me rejoice that he's getting this job. I hate to be the sort of the, the Debbie Downer there. I know that there was a lot of goodwill and positivity generated by that announcement, but I just can't go there with you. What I can go there with you on is the rumor that came from the Splash Report. Our buddy Mark Merchant, and a Mike Merchant, uh, he wrote up a, a, an exclusive for the site where his sources are telling him that Daniel Craig is being looked at to play Mr. Sinister. Uh, that would be a huge get, and I would be all in for that. I would love to see what he would do with the role. Um, and I just think that would be a big win. I think that would be a big win for Fox to get the current James Bond to agree to play a villain in one of their X movies. And especially, you know, you got to imagine he wouldn't just do Gambit. Mr. Sinister is a big-time X-Men villain, so he would be introduced in Gambit and then conceivably brought into a proper X-Men film down the line. So if they could pull that off, if they can close that deal, if that can come true, I am all in for that. Um, next news item I want to touch on has been a recurring one here on the, on, the, on, the, on the show, which is Halloween. We know that they're making another Halloween movie, and there have been questions as to whether or not it's going to follow up Halloween 1 or Halloween 2 or what it is that they're doing. And now this week, thanks to some fresh comments from Mr. John Carpenter, the creator of the Halloween franchise, who's basically endorsed this new film, uh, we now have a much clearer idea of where this Halloween movie fits into things. Mr. Carpenter, let it be known that this is essentially going to be the new Halloween 2. Here's what he said. He said, I don't know how to describe it. It's almost an alternative reality. It picks up after the first one and it pretends that none of the other sequels were made. So remember yesterday, I was, I mean, yesterday, last week, I was saying, I wonder if they're going to pick up from the hospital, since he was involved with that one, or if they're going to pick up from number one, where basically, you know, Lori saw Michael fall out of the window, and then when she goes to look, he's gone. And it looks like this is going to follow up on that timeline and forget the rest, never mind the hospital stuff in part two, 
Never mind any of the stuff with him coming after her daughter and in four and five and you know the other eighty nine Halloween sequels. This is going to follow up from how number one ended. Mr. Carpenter also added, it's going to be fun. There's a really talented director, and it was well-written. I'm impressed. Uh, and mind you, he's not always spoken effusively at these uh, of these um, attempts to revive his Halloween franchise. He was not really a big fan of the Rob Zombie films, and he, you know, he's on record as saying that. So it sounds like Mr. Carpenter believes in this next one. And I'm very excited. I really am. And what's interesting about this storytelling avenue, and it really sort of you know turns the whole thing on its head, is it wasn't revealed until later on that Laurie Strode is supposedly Mike Myers' sister. Michael Myers' sister. Uh, so in theory, they could retcon that out. And they can go a whole different way with the mythology now if they want. You know, because the original franchise eventually centered on this idea of he's trying to kill his bloodline. You know, first he goes after his sister, then he goes after his niece and the whole thing. Now, if they're just going based on one, that whole sister element was not introduced yet. So it gives the people involved with this film a chance to go a completely new, bold direction with Michael Myers. So count me in. That sounds very, very exciting. Uh, in terms of another sort of sequel to a, a classic franchise, there's also news this week on the next Creed movie. Um, and I'm very mixed on it, in all honesty. So basically, uh, yesterday, Sylvester Stallone made it clear that he will be directing Creed to himself. We know he's been writing the sequel. Uh, we know he's producing it. But now he's officially going to be the one who steps into the director's role and takes on the Creed series now from Ryan Coogler. Uh, I'm, I don't know how to feel about that, man. Part of what made Creed sort of exciting was that it was, a, it was, it was new. It was a new, fresh take on the Rocky lore. It was Ryan Coogler looking at what he loved about the Rocky films coming up with this organic story he wanted to tell about Adonis Creed and wanting to put his own stamp on the mythology. Having Stallone suddenly now take over for part two, I'm like, oh, well then, you know, this isn't really what we signed on for. This isn't, you know, this suddenly ends the promise of this being a new and exciting new franchise for us to follow. Uh, who even knows if Coogler re really wanted to make it a franchise? I know there was some loose chatter about sequels back in the day when Creed came out. But, you know, he doesn't strike me as the kind of filmmaker who was dying to suddenly be attached to the hip to a franchise. And look, he's not even making this sequel, so I don't think he was. But, you know, if they were going to follow up on this, I wanted to see you know that continued emphasis on new blood, fresh storytelling, a new set of eyes on the Rocky mythology. Instead, we're getting the same eyes. And listen, those aren't bad eyes. <laughs> I love Stallone, especially when it comes to the Rocky Balboa series. You know, I loved one. I loved two. Uh, there were elements of three, four, and five that I really liked. I absolutely love Rocky Balboa, probably more than I should have, but I absolutely love Rocky Balboa. And I thought he was a scene-stealing genius in Creed with what, you know, where 
his portrayal of Rocky Balboa at this late stage in his life. So I love me some Stallone. I love me some Rocky Balboa. I just have serious trepidation about him suddenly now just taking over the Creed thing. And now it really is just, all right, so this is basically going to be like Rocky Eight now. Um, when I really wanted a Creed two, I didn't want Rocky Eight. I wanted Creed two. But either way, for the you know, fans of Creed, fans of Rocky, it is official. Sylvester Stallone will be directing the sequel. Um, there was also an interesting bit of news, just an interesting sort of soundbite quote from one of the co-writers of Blade Runner that I wanted to share with you. Because of all the different franchises that he could be talking about, of all, of all the different ways that he could be talking about his approach to the script for 2049, uh, he actually has a quote here discussing how the Marvel movies influenced the way he wrote Blade Runner 2049. Doesn't that kind of throw you for a loop just based on the premise? You know, when we talk about Marvel movies, we don't talk about them as being these artistic tour de force things. We talk about how safe they are, how sort of corporate they are, how sort of just sort of, you know, to a certain degree, some of it is very paint by numbers. But meanwhile, this guy who, who helped write this fantastic Blade Runner movie apparently had Marvel on the brain while writing it. So here's what he said. I'm referring to Michael Green. He's the co-writer of the film. He said, So many studios and property rights holders have seen the success of Marvel, which we all adore and wonder how to replicate it. For me, the lesson of Marvel is you don't begin by building a universe. You begin by telling a story worth telling. And if it is a great story, directed well and performed brilliantly and stays with people, it will become the black hole around which a galaxy can form. If you begin by trying to build the universe before creating a film worth watching, well, there be dragons. At no point in the creation of this story or script did anyone talk about spin-offs or how might things continue? It was always, what's our story? And make sure you have a story that is worth the title. Uh, again, I don't know how Marvel would have much of a say in, on his thought process there. Because to me, a lot of the Marvel approach is about building in the idea of the spinoffs and the sequels. But listen, you know, this guy is obviously doing a hell of a lot better than I am. He wrote Blade Runner 2049, so what do I know? But um, for me, one of the other interesting elements of that quote and why I bring it up is it makes you wonder what might have been. If he's talking about this and, and if Marvel was factoring into his thought process on building a black hole potentially around which a galaxy can form, around which a uniform can be a uniform universe can be created, it makes you wonder if there really were much greater ambitions for 2049 than we even knew. Because for many, it just seemed like this cool sort of, all right, we're going we're gonna to make a true sequel to Blade Runner. But I don't think anyone thought, like, now this is going to become a running trend, and now in a couple of years we'll have Blade Runner, you know, 2059, and then Blade Runner 2079. You know, I'm pretty sure people thought this was a one and done. But it looks like the folks involved were at least toying with the idea of this being the start of something. So I kind of wonder what you guys think of that. You know, to me, that sort of surprises me. I never would have really thought 
of Blade Runner 2049 as a franchise starter, as a way to world build on the original and basically set us up for spinoffs and sequels and prequels and all that sort of shit. So let me know what you guys think of that. I found it to be a little strange. But while we're on the subject of world building and growing out franchises and all that sort of stuff, Dwayne Johnson announced this week that he's going to be you know, following through on an old promise to basically have a spinoff for his Fast and Furious character. It doesn't look like he'll be alone either. It looks like Jason Statham will be involved and it's going to basically build on the dynamic that, they, that they've introduced and heavily kicked up to another notch uh, in these last two movies. Um, look, I, you know, now that this is happening, you can officially, uh, pull me out of the running, uh, for any interest in Fast and Furious 9 or 10. For me at this point, Statham and Johnson were the most intriguing parts of those movies. So if they are indeed spinning off, then, uh, I'm spinning off too as a viewer. Cause yeah, I've given them lots of goodwill over the years. I think it's very smart what Justin Lin did. I think it's very, you know, promising what, what Paramount was able to do with that franchise and really sort of take it from being dead in the water to being one of the hottest things in the world. I, they have my utmost respect, but from a storytelling standpoint, there's been nothing there for a while now. And the only thing I was going to see at this point was really Johnson and Statham. And if they're getting, if they're doing their own thing, then I'm no longer interested in any other Fast and Furious stuff. So just kind of wanted to touch on that really quickly. There's not a hell of a lot to say because it's really not that interesting. If truth be told, it's freaking Fast and Furious. And I think we're all over it. Um, the other big story was, you know, Harvey Weinstein. Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> just today, even more allegations came out against him, this time from Asia Argento, who was Vin Diesel's co-star in Triple X. There's a, there's a new rape allegation against Weinstein. It just, it just seems to get worse and worse here. Um, you know, and it's truly unfortunate because for the medium of film, uh, Weinstein was a godsend. You know, he gave a voice to several of the best filmmakers of the last 30 years. He's responsible for producing some of the defining films of a generation. And it's just a shame he turned out to be such a piece of shit. You know, he's such a scumbag in his personal life. It's, it's a shame. <clears throat> if only he brought the same smarts, thought, and intuition to his dealings as a human being as he did to creating great movies, you know, uh, I guess you know, we wouldn't be here. He's he's pretty much just an irredeemable piece of shit now, and he has no one to blame but himself. Uh, but yeah, the story continues to expand and to grow, so you know, I'm sure you could find out more news on that from a much more hard-hitting source than I am. I just you know, wanted to touch on it because it, it is just crazy to see, you know, between Miramax and the Weinstein Company, you know, he's been a big voice for for developing filmmakers for many decades now. And, you know, we wouldn't have Quentin Tarantino or Robert Rodriguez without him. We wouldn't have a lot of the great films of the last 30 years without him. And as it turns out, he's a total piece of shit. So who knew? Um, now I'm going to, on a slightly more uh, optimistic note... 
I, I want to shine a spotlight on someone who I think deserves positive attention. You know, I want to take a moment here to introduce a new segment that I'll do from time to time, which is filmmakers to keep an eye out for. Filmmakers who I want to see more from. Because, you know, too often when an exciting project pops up on the horizon or when a director leaves a project and we as a community start pitching who should replace them, I feel we often mention the same people over and over again. We kind of developed like a usual suspects of directors who should be up for things, if you will. But there are some really exciting filmmakers who've created some great work in the last few years that I want to every once in a while shine a quick spotlight on as I'm dying to see more from them and to see them get the opportunity to, to flex their artistic muscles more often. So the first person I'm going to highlight is Dan Gilroy. Now, if the name doesn't ring a bell, it should. First of all, his brother Tony Gilroy was the man instrumental in reshaping and fixing Rogue One, a Star Wars story. But Dan himself has been doing some great things on his own. He's a director and he's a writer. His best work so far came in the form of the tense, moody, psychologically layered thriller Nightcrawler, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Riz Ahmed, and Rene Russo. It's a film I've brought up before. It's a film I've recommended you see. If you haven't seen it yet, go fucking see it. But, you know, he also, aside from that, and by the way, that was his directorial debut. So he start, right out of the gate, he made a, move that, a movie that floored me. But beyond that, he also has a writing credit on the criminally underrated Kong Skull Island, which I've been beating the drum for that movie all year since it came out. And some of you have reached out to me on Twitter now that you've discovered it. And you agree that it's it's a shame that the film is you know, it didn't really make waves when it came out. It kind of came and went and people sort of underestimated it and underrated it. But I have a feeling that film is going to age very, very nicely. Um, but yeah, he co-wrote that movie. So, you know, Gilroy's the real deal. And he seems to finally, you know, be finding his own voice after years of working as solely a screenwriter on a bunch of other so-so films. You know, Nightcrawler allowed him to sort of step out onto the big stage and show, look what I can do. Um, and right now it looks like Netflix will be the avenue for his next film. So keep an eye out for him, support his stuff. Uh, his Netflix film will be reuniting him with Jake Gyllenhaal and with Rene Russo. So I'm very, very intrigued by what it is that he's got going on there. And in general, I expect big things from Mr. Gilroy in the years to come. Um, I'm going to wrap things up with a couple of recommendations for you. Uh, in terms of podcasts, uh, they just wrapped up a really interesting one. The Los Angeles Times released a true crime podcast simply called Dirty John. Uh, it's six episodes. The, it, you breeze right through them. I did them all in about a week, and I strongly recommend Dirty John. Great storytelling, great documentary, you know, documentarian investigation into an insane case. And uh, I think it'd be worthwhile for you in terms of a movie. So since I've had Harrison Ford on the brain for a while now, since I spent two nights back to back watching Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049, I'm thinking about a, a movie of his that's a little older, 
that I think uh, is much more deserving of the accolades than, than Blade Runner does, than the Blade Runner gets, and that would be The Fugitive. That's right, The Fugitive. I'm sure a lot of the folks who are listening to this who are of my generation probably saw it, but I think younger people have not seen The Fugitive. If you have not, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is a thriller of the highest regard. It is such a good film. Uh, Harrison Ford turns in a great performance, top tier. Samuel, uh, Tommy Lee Jones is is this is the film that really made him a household name. He'd been around for many many years at this point, but this was the point. This was the big pivot point for him. He was nominated for an Academy Award for his portrayal of um, you know uh, U.S. Marshal Sam Gerard. And basically, from that point on, he just kind of became the go-to guy for hard-nosed, no-nonsense characters. So if you have not yet seen The Fugitive, that is this week's referral. All right, folks. So right now, I want to thank you all for spending this last hour with me here on the 34th edition of El Fanboy. If you have not yet had a chance to please go over to iTunes and leave me a five-star review please do so. It Every little bit helps. Now we've got the Patreon account going, so you go to patreon.com slash lfanboy if you want to donate to the cause. Um, and that's it. If you've got any questions for me, be sure to tweet them at me, hashtag lfanboy. I've got the two different Twitter accounts. I have the personal one where I do the bulk of my tweeting, which is at I underscore am underscore mfr and then there's the official one for the show itself which is at l fanboy podcast um and that's it guys thank you so much for spending this time with me i cannot wait for star wars the last jedi i cannot wait for justice league even if my hype for star wars is a little bit higher after those two trailers all right folks until next week adios